0: Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries, with founder and director Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing.
1: Where the governor used to sit, or the, the city official used to sit, and cases would be brought before him and he would make his judgment. That's the picture here when, it's, when the judgment seat of Christ is mentioned. It's the bama seat used in that day for the the city elders or the city governor or whatever it is to uh, pronounce his judgment on the cases that were brought before him. People could plead their cases. Well, we're going to have an opportunity to do the same thing before Jesus Christ. We must give an account of ourselves to him. Why did we do certain things? Why didn't we do certain things? Uh, We will receive a, a commendation or perhaps not. Another passage that speaks of that judgment for Christians is First Corinthians three nine through thirteen. We know from the context that Paul is talking to Christians here, and uh, he says we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, and he, then he changes the metaphor from field to building. But he says you are God's building, according to the grace of God which was given to me as a master, a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Now I think the primary Uh, audience here is he's talking about those teachers because the Corinthians were judging the teachers and saying one's better than the other, and he's saying, Look, I laid a foundation, I taught you about Christ, and others are coming and teaching you other things. They're building on that foundation. But what he's saying is that they need to be careful how they build on that foundation or teach, because there's no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on his foundation with gold, silver and precious stones, wood hay straw each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's salvation no each one's work of what sort it is so there are those who minister out of perhaps selfish motives or even perhaps erroneous doctrine or for or for the sake of gain and uh, they've worked all their lives they've ministered all their lives but their work is just going to burn up on that day, on that day of assessment, that day of the judgment seat assessment. Their works and their ministries aren't going to account for anything. It's going to be like wood, hay and straw. On the other hand, there are those whose works are backed up by good motives, who have worked and labored all their lives, perhaps to build on this foundation of Christ, to come along and teach others out of the best of intentions and motives. And uh, and and hopefully pure doctrine will be a part of that. And their works will persevere and survive the fire, and they won't be burned up. And uh, most important, perhaps, is the verse that we left off, because it says in verse 15 that there is one... Well, you know, we'll look at that passage later. But the point is here is that there is a day coming. There's a day coming when our works will be tested by fire. Not our salvation or not our person. As sometimes erroneously is taught here that this is purgatory or speaking of hell, because every time some people see fire, they think of hell, but that's not in our, remember our good hermeneutics, we were separating these categories. And then 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul knew himself that he would have to give an account. He says, we must all appear. Paul wasn't wondering, wasn't putting his salvation on the line and saying that I'm going to be judged on my salvation. He's saying that I'm going to be judged on what I've done with my life. So, you see, the Christian does have accountability, and that accountability uh, comes down to what Jesus pronounces at the judgment seat of Christ based on our lives, our work, our ministry. So when we talk about rewards and the judgment seat of Christ, we're talking about a judgment for Christians. And it's a judgment of how we lived our new life, our motives, and our deeds for the possibility of eternal rewards. We will be rewarded if we have done worthy deeds, worthy motives, good teaching, have used our lives well. We need to be very clear about it. That it is not a judgment of our salvation to see if we go to heaven or hell. Okay? So we're not talking about A truth now. We're talking about B truth. We're talking about truth that applies to you and me in this room and to other believers, which will be a judgment for rewards and not for salvation. Now, when we talk about rewards, and I understand that, you know, rewards um, is not usually taught in churches, period. I'm sure. Uh, Rodney has addressed it here and other grace churches you'll hear it but in many many churches you won't hear anything about rewards and people say boy that's the first time I've ever heard that so I don't know what your response is going to be but it's a a big vast study and it always amazes me that so much material is never taught or totally ignored like that book I, I showed you the other night he never even mentioned rewards in his interpretation of those passages, and yet it permeated Christ's teaching. It permeated Paul's teaching, and Peter, and Hebrews, and everybody talked about rewards as something not for salvation, but for how we uh, handle our Christian lives. Christians are going to be judged for many things. I don't have an exhaustive list, but let me give you a sample list of some of the things that will be judged for, our treatment of others. Uh, We don't have time to look at all these passages, so you can look them up later to verify what I'm saying. But in James 1, for example, through chapter 2, 13, it talks about um, not showing favoritism to others and showing mercy towards others. And he talks about a judgment, for judgment will be without mercy to those who don't show mercy, he says in verse 13. So we will be judged for how we treat others. We'll be judged for our service. And a couple of parables uh, teach that those who serve faithfully will be rewarded for that faithful service. Uh, our use of money. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9 says if you sow sparingly you'll reap sparingly but if you sow, you know, abundantly you'll you'll receive abundantly that's a biblical principle and 1 Timothy 6:17 through 19 he says it in a very interesting way he says that we can store up for a good foundation that they may lay hold on eternal life in other words the exhortation here is to encourage the rich those who are rich to give generously because they store up for themselves a good foundation and they can lay hold on eternal life. Now, he's not saying that you can buy salvation. But when he, says lay, when he says store up a good foundation, I think he's talking about a good foundation for a life in eternity, a rich experience in eternity. And then he says lay hold of eternal life. Well, they already have eternal life, right? But remember, eternal life is not just a quantity of life. But it's also a quality of life. It's a relationship. And I think what he's saying is they'll just have a richer experience of God's life
0: is the simplest way I could say it. Our leadership is
1: going to be called into judgment. Um, leaders have to give an account for themselves. First Peter 5, 1 through 4, talks about elders in the church. They'll have to give, uh, the shepherds in the church will have to uh, give an account to the chief shepherd. And Hebrews 13, 17 says, that talks about leaders having to give an account for themselves. Rulers must give an account. That puts a little tremble in my knees every now and then. We'll also have to give an account for our words. Matthew 12 says that um, uh, every idle word, we'll have to give an account for every idle word. Luke 12 talks about what is proclaimed in secret will be announced on the rooftops. I mean, there's going to be a time where the things that we say are not just going to be heard by our wives or our children or, or held out by the walls of our home, but every word will be evaluated. Our diligence, Paul talks about. Running a race. I'd actually like to turn to this passage because I don't have the text on the screen and just show you an example here. Because this verse is often misunderstood in chapter 9 of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 9. We look at verse 24 and Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now his word and his exhortation is to Christians, not to un-Christ- non-Christians. And so he says that there's a prize, so, but you need to run in a certain way to obtain it. Verse 25, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Now he's talking about the earthly athlete who runs, uh, is doing it just for a crown of laurel leaves, which is going to wilt and die and fall apart. But he says in the spiritual race, we're running for a prize that will not perish. He doesn't exactly say what the crown is. And so Paul says, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should not become disqualified. Disqualified from what? Salvation? No, he's talking about the prize and the context, right? But yet some people use this verse to say, see, Paul didn't even know he was saved for sure until he died. Isn't that an absurd thought? That Paul would say, I'm not even sure I'm going to get there. But yet there are people who say that. But Paul wasn't unsure about eternal salvation. He was unsure about the prize. And he was saying, I'm trying to run my race in a very disciplined way. And what is it that usually gives way to undiscipline? It's our bodies. They want something that we're not supposed to have. And there goes discipline out the window. Well, there goes your prize out the window. So if we can control our bodies, we can often control whether we win that prize or not. So Paul is talking about himself hypothetically. But also actually, but he's, it's certainly in the context of believers. Our faithfulness faithfulness and suffering. In James chapter one, the uh one who suffers, endures temptations received the crown of life. What is the crown of life? I don't know. We'll talk about that later. I'll tell you later that I don't know. <laughs> the best I can do. Our our witnessed unbelievers also uh Paul talks to the, says to the Thessalonians, you are my joy and my crown at the day of Christ's coming. And uh, so there is an aspect that uh, those that we, to whom we witness become our reward themselves. And John chapter 4, I think, is your passage there on the outline, also mentions that. Uh, There's a promise for those who long for Christ's return. 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8 should be the proper reference, 6 through 8. Uh, there's a crown of righteousness waiting for those who look for Christ, who long for Christ's return. In other words, those who it shows that they have not an earthly uh, fix, but a heavenly fix, and so they're living their lives for eternity, and that will be rewarded when Christ returns with a crown of righteousness, uh, holiness and purity. First Peter one fifteen through seventeen. You can look at that passage when you get a chance. Uh, you might jot down First John two. 28, I think I did already for you. But holiness and purity will be rewarded. Um, we won't have to be ashamed at his coming. We'll um, see praise, honor, and glory. Our humility, Matthew
0: 20, where he uses, uh, where Jesus
1: teaches that to be a great, to be great, you need to be a servant of others. And so in other words, to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to be a servant of others. So our position and reward in the future, in the kingdom of God, depends on how we are serving others here on earth. Now, that list could be extended. In fact, even as uh, J.B. taught, I was noticing I noticed rewards so much in the scriptures that you see it just about everywhere. And you can extend that list. I think J.B. Th- said he had 33 things that were rewarded that he counted. And here's just a partial list. Oh, our humility is the last one. Our humility from Matthew chapter 20, verses 24 through 28. So Christians can receive rewards, and a reward um, can be gained or lost. Now is a good time to look at 1 Corinthians 3. Again, make another observation or two. We already said that there are two different ways that people can minister and build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. They can do it in a worthy manner that will survive a fire, or an unworthy manner that will not survive the fire will be burned up. But verse 14 says, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. So worthy works, worthy ministry earns a reward. However, verse 15 says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved so as through fire. So you see, the burning here is of the works, not the person. The person in the end ultimately will be saved, yet so as through fire. I I picture a guy running out of a burning house with his boxer shorts on. This is somebody who's ministered with unworthy motives or wasted his life. And uh, and he survives, he's saved, but he doesn't have anything with him. No treasures to take with him, nothing of value to take with him. And his hair is smoking, his eyebrows are singed. There's going to be secondhand smoke in heaven, in other words. There's going to be Christians who are there, but they're smoldering. They
0: just got through the fire. Everything got burned up. But they're there by the grace of God. But they don't have treasures in heaven. Rewards can be experienced in this life. While you're turning to Mark
1: 10, I'll remind you what John 10 says. John 10, remember Jesus said, I have come not that you may have life and may have it abundantly. Jesus was concerned not just with our eternal life, but also that we would have an abundant life or a very fruitful life as well. I like Mark chapter 10. Uh, It's a good passage following um, Jesus' discussion about it's harder uh, with the rich young ruler and how hard it is to get into heaven, like going through the eye of a needle and so forth. We come to verse 28. Well, actually, you need to back up to 27 because he says, with men it's impossible, with God, for with God all things are possible. With men it's impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Uh, talking about how anyone can get into heaven, I think, and be saved. Uh, it's it's by God's grace, and that's why it's impossible on man's part. And But Peter says to him, look, we because see, he, he just heard Jesus tell the rich young ruler that he needs, in order, I think, to, to show him his sin he needed to give up everything because this man coveted and he didn't th- he thought he was keeping the commandments and yet jesus was showing him that he really coveted and so he says go sell everything and give it to the poor and the guy wasn't willing to do that rich young r- ruler wasn't w- willing to do that now peter's watching this and he's thinking yeah but i did that and so he says, he says in verse 28 peter says to him see we left all and followed you and that's exactly what it says in in um, luke chapter 5 when it says that When Jesus said, follow me, it says that Peter left everything and followed him. In other words, the question behind Peter's question is, which wasn't really a question, it's a statement. What Peter is saying is, Lord, we've left all to follow you. Uh, What's in it for us? And so Jesus answers him and says, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold. Now look, it says, now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now you see the rewards are broken into those two different aspects. One is in this life, and secondly, in the life to come. So yes, there are rewards that are experienced in this lifetime. Peter, you I know you've left your family, but I'm telling you, Uh, You're going to have a hundred times more family because you're following me. You've left your home, but you're going to have a hundred times more homes. Uh, My friend, that that just bears out to be so true. Uh, And you experience it as I experience it. But uh, I am closer to people in Christ, my brothers and sisters in Christ, than I am to my own flesh and blood, brothers and sisters who don't know Christ. And I have a bigger family than I ever dreamed I'd have. I, I, I have such a big family now that I forget everyone's names. <laughs> so forgive me for forgetting your name, brother and sister. But my family has just grown so much uh, because in following Christ, I have a hundred, a thousand times more than I ever thought I would have in my earthly family. When I, when I got married to Karen, I told her, I said, I'm going into the full-time ministry this was kind of like you got a little time to change your mind now. This was this speech. I said I'm going into full-time ministry, and I don't know if I'll ever be able to own a house because you know ministers typically don't get paid a lot. And didn't didn't phase her a bit. She's just not built that way anyway. She does she doesn't want a lot. Doesn't expect a lot. That was fine with her. So you know we went ahead and got married, and but we were able to buy a house. And while I was still in seminary, we bought a uh, 1,100 foot. House, 1100 square foot house. There we raised four children partway and had a church office all in that little house. And uh, then I was, uh, we finally decided, well, we need to sell this and try to find something bigger. And uh, so I put it on the market and uh, we actually sold it. And I had just, uh, I actually put a contract on another house, which really wasn't bigger, but it's all I could afford. But at least it had the opportunity where I could build on another room. My other house didn't have that, so I said, "Well, we'll just get it and build another room." And then the f- friends in the church were leaving, and uh, they were moving out of out of the state or area. And they said, "You know, Charlie, we want you and Karen to buy our house." And they had a big house. And uh, I, and when he said that, I literally laughed. I said, "Yeah, I didn't want to hurt. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you know, we just we there's no way in the world we can afford your house." He said, "No, no, no. Let's just talk about it. Let's have dinner together and talk about it." Well, I, I said, okay, you know. So we did that, and to make a long story short, uh, God was so gracious through him that we live in a house now twice the, more than twice the size of that home, and we've continued to raise our children there, and it's just been a home I never thought I could own. Well, that's just the physical part of it, you know. But so then I then I say, you know, I like to get away. I can only really write when I get out of town and get away from all my distractions of home and office. So I remember one time writing and mentioning in a newsletter, but i'd like to get away somewhere to write you know and i probably had a dozen people contact me and say oh yeah you can use our house you can use our cabin you can use our property here or there and it just it just overwhelmed me because at the time i just related it to this passage that uh, you you can give up your house in this life but god gives it back a hundred times more and the whole point is that there is a reward in this life for following him much less in eternity it starts in this life and that's It's wonderful wonderful experience of that life, but Jesus also says, in the age to come, eternal life. And eternal life is not, again, speaking of saying that you'll you'll be saved because you're making these sacrifices, but you'll experience, you think that's experiencing life? You'll experience it even more in God's presence, more of his life in the age to come. So rewards can also be experienced in eternity. And so Matthew 16 talks about Jesus uh, returning. And giving us rewards in Revelation 22, likewise, talks about him coming and giving us rewards at his second coming that go right on in to eternity. And when we look at the uh, idea of rewards in the scriptures, we see that they can vary. There's different kinds of rewards. Jesus says, you know, uh, lay up treasures in heaven. So you can have treasures in heaven. What are they? I don't know, because that passage doesn't say. But if Jesus calls us a it a treasure. I think it's going to be pretty good, and I'm just willing to trust them with that. How about you? Okay. And um, then there's rewards that are called the crown rewards, uh, the crown of glory, the crown of life, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, for example. I tend, you say, what are those, Charlie? Like, I don't know for sure, but I tend to take them as the crown which is glory, the crown which is life, the crown which is rejoicing, the crown which is righteousness. In other words the reward that we'll experience in heaven is more of God's glory. We'll have the capacity to experience his glory, uh, a bigger bucket, some might say. Some people will experience a, a cup full of his glory. Some people experience a bucket full of his glory. Some people will experience a, 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 a dumpster full of his glory. That's a bad, bad example, isn't it? The crown of life. Experience more of God's life. It's not talking about gaining eternal uh, life in the sense of being saved, but we'll just God is life. We experience more of God, and and we'll experience more rejoicing in His presence. We'll experience more righteousness of His righteousness because God is righteous. So I think these things just speak of a greater experience of those things. Not dogmatic about that, my friends. Some people want to parse every word and understand everything. It doesn't really go to that level with me. I'm just if if God says it and it's good. I'm good with it, you know, so I don't need to know exactly what that is. I'll just uh, hope that I get that through um, my judgment seat judgment. Rewards can vary. There's the overcomer rewards. <clears throat> this is a whole study in itself, which is very fascinating. But in Revelation 2 through 3, he writes seven letters to seven churches, and at the end of each one, he promises them some kind of reward, like you'll eat from the tree of life, or you'll, you'll eat the hidden manna, or you'll have a special stone with your name written on it, or you'll reign with Christ in his kingdom. There are different rewards named for overcoming sin and problems and trials and tribulations in their churches. That's a whole different study, and I'm not going to go into all of that, but there are what are called or known as the overcomer rewards. And then there is the reigning with Christ. Romans 8, verse 17 through 21 talks about those who suffer will reign with Christ. Our heirs with God, and and if we suffer, we're co-heirs with Christ. Everybody's going to be an heir of God and inherit the promises that he's promised us, but only those who suffer in, in faithfulness will be co-heirs with Christ. And I think that speaks of uh, co-reigning with him in the kingdom. And likewise, in Matthew 19, verses 27 through 28, it talks about the privilege of reigning with Christ. Now, we're in the middle of a political election, and we see all the, all the politics going on, but it's pretty common knowledge that those who do the hard work in a campaign to get there official elected are probably going to be rewarded in that administration, right? That's how they get their positions and their privileges later on. So they're willing to work hard. They're willing to work for free because they know later on they're going to get a position in the administration. Completely different motives in the church, but those who work hard for Christ, those who work well for Christ, those who are faithful, are going to be given positions of responsibility in the kingdom of God kingdom of God are not going to be floating on clouds we're going to be living for a thousand years here on this earth and it's going to take a lot of help to run the earth to help Jesus administer his justice in the kingdom
0: of God I like this one perhaps uh, best of all and that's Christ's verbal honor just to hear well done my good and faithful servant
1: uh, to have him confess me before the father Matthew 25 perhaps speaks of You know, if we confess him before men, well, he'll confess us before the father. That could be immediately or could be in the future as a reward. But he's going to speak well of us. And I just long to hear him speak well of me. Because I, in the end, I don't really care what you say. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 1 through 5. He says, look, I don't care to be judged by any man. I don't even judge myself, but that day is going to reveal everything. Paul's saying, I don't care what you think. I don't even care what I think. Only what God thinks matters. And so I love it when people say, nice message, nice whatever, but I don't take it too seriously. It's only what God says it counts. Christ's verbal honor.
0: And that means a lot to me. When are these rewards given?
1: Well, it's not real clear when the rewards are given, but it seems that some are given at Christ's coming. And, uh, uh, And it seems that they would either be at the rapture or after our death and perhaps in our glorified bodies, so that we can enjoy them. So I'm kind of placing them probably between the rapture and the second coming, which means during the tribulation period where church believers would be rewarded. And then those reward, the effects of those would carry on into the kingdom and eternity. Again, this is a big area of study. And there's a lot of people who have done more meticulous thinking in this than me. Again, they're motivated to do that for their own reasons. I it's good, good enough with me to know that I'm going to be rewarded. And uh, the timeline on that doesn't fascinate me as much as it does other people. So if you ask me more questions about that, I'm happy to tell you I don't know. Why should we teach about rewards? Well, I can go into a lot of things. But did you hand the second handout to the second handout is from my grace notes, the kind of Bible study I put in my newsletter. And it's also available for free downloading on the Internet. And you can take that copy and copy it. And what we're trying to do here is answer the objection that some people have about rewards. Because there are those who say, you know, don't teach me about rewards. That's selfish. That's not why I serve Christ. That, that's a selfish motivation. Well, they have a point that it, some people could look at it in a selfish way. And secondly, I, I would say it's not the only motivation. The highest motivation for serving God is, is love of God and gratitude for what he's done. There are other motivations like duty and eternal significance. You can, even, you can even serve God out of fear. That's the last motivation. That's the bottom of my list. But rewards is somewhere under love and gratitude. But it's a legitimate motivation. It's not the one that presses my button. I like, to know, I like to think I'm serving God because I love him and I'm so grateful for what he's done. And if God wants to reward me for that, that's fine.
0: That's why I don't need to know what the rewards are or when they happen. Because I'm going to do what I'm going to do
1: for God because I love him. So are rewards selfish? Well, they can be. I guess if you look at them in a mechanical way, but that's not the chief appeal in the scriptures to begin with. And then I give you many other reasons we ought to teach about them. But the bottom line is this. If God is pleased to give us rewards, who are we to say that that's a selfish thing? And then we would say that salvation's a selfish thing. Because I wanted to get out of hell, so I believed in Jesus. Is that selfish? Well, but God wants to give us salvation. And he wants to give us rewards in the end. Rewards glorify God. And that's why he does give us rewards. The elders throw their crowns before him. And and if I can take my rewards and in any way glorify God with them, then God receives the glory and we're both happy. So who am I to say that that's a selfish motive? So you can look at that uh, Bible study note there. Life under grace is not a life of license, but a life of responsibility with temporal and eternal consequences. Okay? When we talk about be truth, when we talk about sanctification, it's very, very important to understand that Christianity is not just getting the
0: ticket to heaven, but it is how
1: we use that new life. I like to ask people this what's better than winning a million dollars in the lottery? Spending a million dollars in the lottery,
0: right? The only thing better than winning it is spending it. The only thing better than receiving eternal life is living it.
1: And that's what rewards is all about. It's an encouragement to live responsibly before God, knowing that there are consequences, both in this life and in the next life. We didn't talk much about the negative consequences of the judgment seat of Christ, but the judgment seat does talk about works being burned up. There's a loss of rewards. There are verses that talk about regret and sorrow. And how long that lasts, that's a whole subject of debate that I'm not going to get into. There will be some regret when Christ returns for those who do not live faithfully. I don't think that will be an eternal experience, but there will be regret. There will, some, some will be ashamed of his coming, it implies when it says, so that we will not be ashamed of his coming in 1 John 2. So there's a whole negative side of this. And what all that means is that we should live responsibly because we have to give an account for our lives. And unfortunately, there's so many churches that are just emphasizing the A truth. Get saved, get saved, get saved, get saved, get saved. And people sit week after week after week and hear that truth. And there's not the perspective that now I need to be
0: responsible with what I've received.
1: And it's not just it's not just resting on the promises, but it's living a life of fruitfulness and productivity. Because we have to give an accounting for how we use that new life. Live with eternity in mind. What we do today affects our experience in eternity. Yes, it does make a difference how we live today. It does make a difference how we uh, uh, understand God's grace and appropriate that in our lives. If we abuse it, we'll lose our reward. If we live according to it. We'll gain a reward. And what today is, 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 a, is a, a training ground, a preparation for the kingdom of God and our experience of life there. The more faithful we are here, the greater our experience of God's presence and eternal life will be in his kingdom. So be careful with interpretation. Recognize that hell is not always in view in the passages that talk about losing a prize or losing a reward or, or getting tested by fire. So many people jump to the conclusion that those speak of hell. And that's the mistake that this this fellow in this book I showed last night is doing. Every time he reads any kind of judgment, it's an immediately assumed judgment of salvation, an A truth. And he never sees the B truth in it. What a one-sided, one-dimensional view of the Christian life that is. But we who teach the grace of God in salvation and the grace of God in the Christian life understand that that means that we have to give an account that we have lived responsibly under the grace of God. And because of that, we're going to have a greater experience in eternity. And I don't think that people are going to be jealous in heaven about uh, uh, you know, if somebody has more glory than another or somebody has closer to the throne than another. I don't look at it like that. I think we'll all be happy to be there, don't you? And um, we're just going to be Some are going to be happier than others, uh, appreciate it more than others, because in this life, they've created them in themselves a greater capacity to enjoy that. When my children were much younger, I took them, I like to get them a little class, you know, and culture. So I couldn't usually afford to take them to a concert. So when the Navy band came to town and they offered free tickets, I sent away for the free tickets and got six free tickets for our family took my children of varying ages, pretty young, to hear the Navy band play their classical and kind of mixed numbers, mostly classical things. And we sat there, again, uh, we were on the third row, got there early, sat on the third row, because it wasn't reserve seating in Fort Worth. And the Navy began began to play. And uh, my first, my youngest was, uh, fell asleep, I think, on the first song. Now, I'm not a great music aficionado. I don't, Know a lot about music. I know what I like. I know what I don't like. I don't know a lot enough about classical music to really appreciate it. But I like some of it. If, I just if it sounds good, I like it. That's about my criteria. So I enjoyed, enjoyed it. I was having a good time. Uh, I think my second one fell asleep probably during about the third song. Uh, my fourth probably nodded off quite a bit, and my my third nodded off quite a bit. And I think my fourth might have stayed awake for the whole thing. So uh, they played a lot of different songs. Afterwards, I asked them. I said, "How'd you enjoy it?" And they said, "Oh." It was all right. I guess it didn't want to hurt my feelings. It was all right. You're probably pretty bored. My wife and I enjoyed it. You know, it was nice. Nice experience for us. We weren't bouncing up and down about it. But here's an interesting thing that they did in that concert. It was a Navy band. They said, we're going to pay a tribute to all of our veterans in the audience. So when we pay, play the theme for your branch of the military, we want you to stand. And, uh, and the audience is just free to show their appreciation any way they want to. So, first of all, they, they started to play the Army thing when the caissons go rolling along, and the old veterans of the Army stood up, and the audience applauded. Then they played the, the uh, anthem for the um, Air Force. Uh, I was going to say up, up, and away, but that's a different song. Isn't it? Off we go to the Wild, wild Blue Yonder, and uh, the Air Force veterans stood up, and people applauded them. Then they played the Marine Anthem, uh, which is from the halls of Montezuma. And the Marines stood up, and people applauded them. It got a little bit louder each time. And they saved the Navy for last. They, I think they did the Coast Guard too, by the way, But for you veterans. But I think they did the Navy for last because they were the Navy band, so they played Anchors Away. And the Navy men stood up. But now here I'm on the third row, and on the first row there's a guy, and he's, and he's an older guy. He's gray-haired. He's obviously retired, but he's wearing his uniform. He stands up when they play the Navy song.
0: And he turns around and he faces the crowd and salutes with tears coming down his face. And I'm thinking, I like the song, but it's not that great. But why, why is our perspective and enjoyment different? It's because he paid a price. Somewhere he gave
1: four years of his life, 40 years of his life. Maybe he gave his son. Maybe he gave a leg. I don't know. But his perspective was different, and he had a whole different experience than I did. I was glad to be there. My children were glad to be there. But this
0: man appreciated it more than us all.
1: The doctor of rewards teaches that when we get to heaven, there's not going to be jealousy or one-upsmanship or uh, eternal grief. But there's some people who are really
0: going to experience what God is all about.